Welcome to the podcast of Walking in the Promises. Walking in the Promises is a ministry of God's grace expressed through the unfolding of his word. The following message is by our founder, Marcelo Tolopilo. Psalm 1 is, is the door to the Psalter. This is where we literally walk into this, this book, this collection of, of psalms, and we hear the prayers and the songs of people who love God, people just like you and I, ordinary people with ordinary, sometimes extraordinary problems. But this is a wisdom song. There, there's five kinds of psalms. Wisdom is one of the categories. And that just simply means that this psalm is intended to guide us to godly living. And this psalm guides us to godly living by unfolding the way of the godly. It does that by way of contrast. In verses 1 through 3, specifically, we have the godly. In verses 4 through 6, we have the way of the wicked. And all of that is to introduce us to the way of blessing. That's the ultimate goal in this Psalm, if you've got your Bible, you can see it right there at the front. How, what is the man? How blessed, how blessed is the man. The word blessed can be translated happy. How happy is the man? But this word is not talking about the happiness that we associate with, you know, feeling good or, or just outward circumstances that are favorable, etc., Happiness here is a deep-seated inner happiness that is rooted in the person and the character of God himself. And this word blessed is the capstone here. It is in the emphatic position. And it's in the plural, interestingly enough. You could literally reword this to read, all oh, the happiness says of the man. One commentator put it this way, or titled it this way. Oh, how very happy is the man. One of the characteristics of the godly, and this is a a description of the believer. This is you and I. But one of the characteristics of the godly is that they are blessed in manifold and deep ways. And this leads to personal joy and personal peace. And I don't know about you, but that's where I want to live, right? I want to experience peace. I want to experience joy. I want to experience of the riches of God. And this psalm, Psalm 1, begins, and this is the most important thing, with a description, with the unfolding of a godly man. And we have him described in three ways. First of all, we have him described in terms of what he avoids, what the godly man avoids. That's in verse 1. Secondly, we have him described in terms of what he practices. That's verse 2. And thirdly, we have him described in terms of what he is like or what his life looks like as a result of the life decisions he has made. So what does a godly man avoid? Let's look at that first definition. Verse 1. How blessed, happy, oh very happy, is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the, in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Those who love God reject the, the life path of this world. And that's what this chapter is, is, is teaching us. These verses are teaching us. Specifically, the text outlines three practices that the godly reject. And we're going to look at those. But by so doing, guys, 
the Holy Spirit also warns us about the growing power and danger of sin in our lives. This is a part of the secondary but powerful teaching of the Holy Spirit in this verse. We are warned. This becomes a cautionary psalm. And we are warned, we are exhorted to understand the danger of sin and to examine our lives for its decaying influence. That's got to be part of our ongoing vigilance always as believers. We are reminded that we're not immune to sin. Yes, the godly man rejects the godly woman. The godly person rejects these things, the, the life path of the world. But he is also, she is all, also always remembering that he or she is not immune to the deception of sin. Guys, we have to constantly, constantly evaluate our thinking, evaluate our attitudes, evaluate our practices to see if the pollution that is in the world is encroaching on our hearts and minds. Always. This, this is what Jesus told the disciples on that last night before, when he was betrayed, right? He, after that Seder meal, was washing their feet. Remember, he took off his outer robe, girded himself, and grabbed a towel and stooped down, began to wash the disciples' feet. And when Peter saw this, he said to Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? Are you kidding me? He says, I, I need to wash your feet. And Jesus said to him, look, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will hereafter, after the resurrection. And then Peter, hearing that, said, well, first of all, Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, uh, you have nothing with me to do with me. And the Lord responded to him, or Peter responded to the Lord, Lord, not just my feet, but my whole body as well. Wash me. I need a sponge bath. And Jesus said to, to him, you are already clean, Peter. You need only wash your feet. In other words, you're purified. You're a redeemed person. You're pure before God, but you walk around this world, and guess what? Your feet get dirty. And Jesus is saying by this practice, you guys need to deal with the sin that encroaches itself on your life. I heard a pastor, a wise pastor, uh, many years ago just compare sin in our lives to erosion on a bridge, to rust on a bridge. You know, when you see rust on a new bridge, there's not a whole lot of concern, right? It can handle the weight load, the stress of, of traffic. Tra you know, it, it can handle the weather. But what happens with those areas of rust 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40, 50 years down the road or more if they're not tended to? What happens to the bridge? It collapses under its own rot, right? It gets eaten away and collapses. And that's the idea that Jesus was telling the disciples, you need to deal with, deal with the sin that accumulates around your feet. I did a little research a couple days ago, yesterday in fact, about the Golden Gate Bridge. You know how often they, they paint that thing? Every day, all year round. You know what they do? They start at one end. And they work their way over to the other side of the bridge. Then they turn around, come back, and start all over again. Continuously. In fact, I read that these are the people that the Golden Gate Bridge employs to just maintenance. Now, there are 28 painters, five painter laborers, 
one chief bridge painter, he must be the big chief, it has, they hired 13 iron workers, three push iron workers, I don't know what those are, but they sound very specialized. And they're continually replacing corroded steel on the bridge. Tons of steel, tons of paint, they're scraping off and they're dealing with the rust and the erosion. Why do they do that? Because if they don't do that, that bridge is gonna collapse and go into the sea. The salt of the bay will eat it up. So guys, as we look at the, the three things here that the godly avoid, take inventory of your life and think through. Ask yourself the questions. Is there an aspect of this thinking or behavior or hostility, whatever we're looking at, that has crept its way into my life? And if you can identify that, deal with it before the Lord. Confess it. Get rid of it. Again, defining the believing person, what he avoids, by what he avoids, the psalmist observes three things that the godly reject. Again, the godly is you and me. They, first of all, do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. They do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. What do you do when you walk? What does that bring to mind? Well, your, your brain kind of takes in the data points, right? Like it senses there's a wire underneath this carpet. If I don't watch it, I'm going to bite it because my boots are prone to catch. Okay, so it takes in the, the data. And then based on the data, the information, you put one foot in front of the other. And then what happens? Do the same thing in milliseconds. Then you put the other foot. Take in the data, put it in the other foot. And step by step, you're making decisions based on information that turns into walking. In the New Testament, Galatians 5, we're told twice to walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? We take the information God has given us in His Word. We submit to the Holy Spirit's control. And we step out. One step. Then another step. Then another step. And we are walking in or by the Holy Spirit. That's what that means. So metaphorically, walking has come to mean making decisions with information. You see the word counsel there. This is the word that can be, mean advice. These are decisions based on a certain kind of counsel. And in this case, it's not the counsel of the wise or prudent, but it's the counsel of the what? The wicked. The advice of the internally, morally corrupt person. This is the the worldview, the broken worldview and philosophies and humanistic values of the world that constantly put man and his pleasure at the center of life. The godly person rejects that counsel in the broken thinking of the wor world. The, the blessed are blessed in part because they do not walk in the counsel of, of the wicked or the advice of the world. And a good way to, for us to reflect on this principle is to ask ourselves the question, who am I listening to? We're talking about the realm of ideas here. Who are we listening to? You know, sometimes uh, the voice of the world is very subtle. Sometimes it's just loud. But it is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. And if we don't 
examine our thinking continually, guys, we can find ourselves listening to the message and song of the world and tapping our toes to that. What are we listening to? What are we filling our minds with? Is it Oprah? Hope not. Is it Dr. Phil? Hope not. But maybe it's the media. Maybe it's the music of this world sometimes and and the sexual temptations that are so subtle and out there all the time. Who are we listening to? The godly person will reject the counsel of the world. It doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but they are evaluating all the time who and what am I listening to. The second thing the godly person avoids is that he or she does not stand in the path of sinners. And while the previous walking in the counsel of the wicked is the area of ideas, the path of sinners is an entrenched pattern or a lifestyle. That's what this is a reference to. In fact, the term to stand is, means just what it sounds like. When you, when you stand on something, what do you do? You're identifying with it. You're saying, this is my community. This is my way. It is the path of sinners. Those who practice sin. This is a way of behaving. And here, guys, in in this psalm, uh, the godly avoid the path of sinners. And you say, well, Marcella, that sounds like you're making it like the believer really doesn't struggle with sin all that much. That uh, we don't stand in the path of those who practice sin, those who miss the mark. And uh, you may say to me, I don't know about you, but I wrestle with sin. I fight it, I fall, I repent of it, I struggle with it, sometimes I return to it. And the answer to your question is no, of course the godly struggle with sin, but that's just the point. They struggle with it. We struggle with the lure of the world. We struggle with temptations of the flesh. We struggle with stumbling blocks that are there, and sometimes we stumble over them. But the godly do not stand Do not delight in, do not identify with the path of sinners. In fact, that term, or the phrase, the path of sinners, describes a completely different animal. This is not the person who struggles with sin. This is the person who lives in sin. The path of sinners, the word path, it's interesting. It means to tread upon, to trample, to march upon, to press. In other words, this is a well-worn path. This is a trail with a rut in it. This is what we would call a lifestyle, the path of sinners. You know, my birth doctor was named Dr. Canclini. I never knew his first name. My parents just talked about him from time to time. He was uh, the OBGYN who delivered me, and he was a very, in Argentina where I was born, I was born in a, in a tourist town, a lake town named Chascomús. Uh, there's no... There's not going to be a quiz on that, so you have to remember Chaska Moose. But Dr. Canclini received patients from all over Argentina. And very famous, successful OBGYN, he delivered me. And uh, my dad told me the story that, uh, first of all, he really liked my dad. And he was uh, drawn to my dad because Dr. Canclini needed a confessor. Now, he wasn't the local priest, my dad. My dad was a pastor. But uh, Dr. Cancini 
trusted him, and he had a terrible addiction to sexual sin. And he would uh, come to my dad, and he said, he would sit across from my desk and just weep and weep and weep over his sin, but he could never avoid the lure, the acquaintances, the company, the people who stood in the path of sinners, and that's where he stood. My dad eventually moved on to a different city, a different pastorate. Later, he, uh, we all immigrated to the United States. It took us nine years to get permission to get here, and my dad was a Spanish-speaking pastor in Long Beach for 25 years here. Um, and he went back to visit Argentina. He went back to Chascomús, and he wanted to visit Canclini. And he walked into the grounds and walked up to the, the mansion, the, the door of the mansion, knocked on the door. The maid came, came forward, and she said, can I help you? And he, my dad said, I'm here to see Dr. Canclini. And she said, I'm sorry, but he doesn't see, take visitors anymore. And uh, he said, will you tell him that Pastor Tolopilo is here? And when he heard that Tolopilo was there, he came bounding as much as an 85-year-old can bound he came bounding to the door and he embraced my dad and just wept on his shoulder like a baby. You know what? He was still addicted to the same things. And he could not get off the path of behavior that was his lifestyle. And as far as we know, he died without knowing the Lord Jesus, his forgiving power. My dad shared the gospel with this guy inside and out. He knew the gospel. He could repeat it to you but he could not pull himself away from that path, that lifestyle. The godly avoids the path of sinners. They avoid the established habits, highways and byways of the godless. Sin is a very real and present danger, guys, and we could benefit by asking ourselves the question, what places are we haunting? What places are we going to? Be they real or cyber, what people, what organizations are we approaching that could lure us into this very, very sad path? Our third point under the principle of what the godly appoint is that the godly does not sit, what? In the seat of scoffers. What is a scoffer? That's not a word we use very often. It means to speak scornfully, derisively, uh, mockingly. In this case, it also means to sit as judge over God. Scoff. Um, the word sit has the idea of to dwell. This is, it literally can be, translated, can be translated to be set as a jewel. This is a very settled, fixed place that this person has come to. And it means to be enthroned. And the word seat means judgment seat. So this isn't... The, God, the ungodly person described here is the man or the woman who has arrived at a settled disposition of the heart where he or she sits in judgment over God and his standards. Do you hear their voices today? In social media or in the media in general? The ungodly, the scoffers, rail against the one true gospel of grace. They always tell you, how can there only be one way? That can't be right. We hear the scoffer mocking the sanctity of biblical marriage or railing against the preciousness of life in the womb or sexual purity or the truthfulness of God's word. 
We hear the mockers. And I'll tell you guys, I, I tell you with a broken heart that I have known people, some people who were, ra- who were very close to me, some people that were related to me, that are related to me, people raised in Christian homes, who made a profession of faith, who went on short-term missions, individuals who were lured by the counsel or the seductive ideas of this world, who fell into illicit patterns of behavior and who now mock the very God they once claimed to follow. The scoffers are there. And if we go to them, and we must go to them, we must go because we are compelled by Christ to do so by his love. And we must approach them with the true truth. We can't approach them by diminishing their sins so as to win them over with camaraderie. And I've seen the church do that. We cannot have close fellowship with those who mock God, those who sit in the seat of scoffers. And your inventory question as you look at your own life is, who are you hanging out with? Who are you hanging out with? Do you find yourself more and more in the company of scoffers? Guard your heart. Arm yourself with the gospel of peace. And pray that you may be delivered from temptation. And I want you to notice one more thing in in terms of this first point of what the godly man avoids. And that is this. I want you to notice the devolution of sin and its destructive power. Did you notice most people don't start as scoffers? That's not the first thing even listed here. Sin grows as it begins in the mind with a step-by-step counsel of the wicked which expresses itself in evil practices, a lifestyle, and ends up with a defense of those practices and a railing against God. Guys, this verse is a testimony to the ever-tightening grip and destruction of, of that is in sin. It's like a bow constrictor. Sin often progresses from errant thinking, evil thinking, to evil practice, says to defense of behavior and a railing against God. Who are you listening to? Where are you hanging out? And who are you hanging with? We can't afford to be nonchalant about sin. And I think this is part of what this psalm teaches us. Now, That's the negative description of a man of God, right? Or a woman of God, a person, a godly person. Verse 2 gives us the positive description. What a godly person practices. Not just what he runs away from, as important as that is, but what he runs to. And verse 2 states positively this. But his delight, the godly person, the believer, but his delight is what? In the law of the Lord and in his law, he meditates day and night. What does it mean to delight in something, guys? You know what it means? Simply, it means to take pleasure in. It's to take pleasure in something because of the intrinsic qualities or characteristics or inherent value of something. Those qualities give give us pleasure. We take pleasure in a lot of things. We take pleasure, for example, in our children, don't we? Why do you take pleasure in your children? Because you see in their their face a glint of of their mother when they smile. You, You value them because of the gifts that God has given them 
And so you anticipate their, their productivity, their, their fruitfulness, and that gives you joy. We, we take pleasure in, the, in our children because of who they are that gives us pleasure. We do the same thing with food, right? We take pleasure with food. We take pleasure in certain, we have favorite things because of certain qualities that food possesses. Like, if you could envision an In-N-Out double cheeseburger with fries and a chocolate shake right now. You know what that looks like. You know what that feels like. Many of you just woke up. Because you can identify with the very characteristics of that meal. In fact, some of you will probably go to In-N-Out because of this after church. I'm not being paid by them, by the way. But you delight in that food. You can, you can feel the texture of the fries. You can smell the hamburger. You delight in that. A believer delights in God's word. It awakens an emotional, intellectual, spiritual salvation. You know, whenever I get together with Pastor Eric, be it over a cup of coffee or lunch or something, or when I run into him in the, in the hall of, of church, when uh, he and I text, it isn't long before our conversation turns to the scripture. All the time. And some of you know where I'm going with this. When you present to Eric this little morsel that you have discovered in Scripture. Let's say you've been mulling over a, a verse of Scripture and, and the Lord peels back some of the, the hubris and you see this, this very flavorful morsel and you share it with Eric. You, you lay it out in front of him. What, what is he, how does he often respond? <laughs> it was just knee-jerk, right? He goes, mmm. The longer he mmms, the better. <laughs> Tasty, he'll often tell you. In fact, he sent me uh, a text this week with 71 M's on it. It's a new record for me. I was like, mmm, mmm. He made a yummy sound. The godly person experiences emotional pleasure in the value, the qualities of the Word of God. They can cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 119. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. That's an, that's an effusion. Oh, how I love your law. The godly long for the law because they know its characteristics. They know its quality. And they know what that law will produce in their lives. And so God's servants drink in the law, gobble up the law, and they meditate it day and night. They're like, again, the psalmist in 119, probably good King Hezekiah. We're not sure. In verse 148, where he says, My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. He says, I can't wait for the graveyard shift so that I can be alone with you and muse over your words. The word meditate is very cool. It means to moan, to murmur, to growl, to mutter. It's very visceral. And the man who loves the Lord loves this word and turns it over in his mind continually. He's talking to himself. He's preaching to himself. He's praying in his mind to God. He's pouring his heart out to God about the meaning of his word. Talking to God about it. 
God's law is the delightful object of his cognition throughout the day. That's the practice of the godly. It is that they delight and meditate in the law of the Lord. You know, excuse me, it's worth noting that the psalmist doesn't say the practice of the godly is that they do mitzvah. That they do good things. The practice of the godly is that they are good to their neighbor. They're kind to their animals. They love their wife. They, they care for their children. As true and good as all those things are. The Holy Spirit brings our attention here to this place, to this practice, and tells us that the godly man or woman takes pleasure in the words of God. And he takes pleasure in God's revelation because the law is his all-sufficient source for everything that God wants to do, both in him, in her, and through them. That's the perfect source. It's the fuel, the catalyst, the, the change agent. <clears throat> all that God wants to produce in you and wants to accomplish through you is in the word. That a, a righteous man, a godly man, is good to his neighbor, kind to his animals, loves his wife, cares for his children. All of those good things are from a heart that is transformed by the law of the Lord. But first things first. It's the law transforming the heart that produces the good. God's man knows, the godly woman knows that the law will transform him. The Bible will equip him. The law will guide him. The law will bring joy and clarity and so much more. It's a one-stop spiritual warehouse shop. Did I say that right? A one-stop shop spiritual warehouse. Maybe that's better. Don't you, I'm a man and I'm practical. Not that women aren't practical. <laughs> no, but it's why I love Costco. Where else can a person buy tires for their car and flowers for their wife, right? One stop shop. I bought my children at Costco, they came in a four pack. It's practical. The Word of God is the one-stop shop for the spiritual journeyman. Listen to the, I want to just spend a couple of minutes in, in Psalm 19, a Psalm of David. Some think that King Hezekiah copied or used as a template Psalm 19 to write Psalm 119, which praises the Word of God in every one of its 148 verses, whatever it is. But in the Psalm of David, Psalm 19, it's amazing. Verses 7 through 10, we're not going to look at this in any depth. But in Psalm 19, David gives us six titles for the, for the Word of God, six characteristics, or what is it like, what's its nature, and six benefits, all in three verses. And let me just read the, the titles of the Word. It's called The Law, The Testimony, That which bears testimony of who God is, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, which is an interesting title for the word of God. It's that which evokes in us a reverential awe of God. And it's called judgments. The characteristics are that it's perfect or complete. It is sure, the key idea there being certainty. 
It is right. It leads us to right behavior or righteousness. It is pure, morally pure, therefore the source of moral purity. It is clean or unadulterated by the world and the, the, the counsel of the wicked. And it is true. That is, it is dependable. You can take it to the bank. You can believe it. It'll do what it says. It works. Now, here are the benefits. And again, we're going through them very quickly. David tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. I love that. It brings renewal. Brother, sister, do you need renewal? Are you feeling dry? Do you need revivement, revival? Where are you seeking that revival? Is it in people? Is it in things? Is it in money? Is it in food? Is it in shopping? What brings true, true renewal to the soul, restores the soul, is the word of God. Secondly, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You may say, Marcelo, I'm a young believer. I just don't know that much. I feel so overwhelmed sometimes. I don't know where to go. Go to the scripture. You know, the word simple in verse 7, the root word means an open door or an open field. In other words, this is the most vulnerable of people. And Scripture can take the most vulnerable people and make them wise. Thirdly, he says the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. It brings joy to the heart. The commandment of the Lord, fourthly, is pure, enlightening the eyes. It gives us moral clarity. Boy, do we need that. You know, this is a day when it's been amazing over the last 10 years. You know, when... Right is wrong, wrong is right, black is white, white is black. What used to be upside is now upside down. We need moral clarity. That comes from the word of God. Fifthly, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It is eternal. It is eternal. Look, I love our constitution. I love this country. Our family has been forced out of two continents and two, two countries by all intents and purposes. When we came here, it took us nine years to get here, like I said, to get permission. But this country embraced us completely and said, you can become one of ours, one of us. And I fell in love with the U.S. Constitution. Among all, all human documents, it is among the most beautiful, wisest documents ever written, Right? But it's a human document. That means it's not perfect. And that's why we have to amend it from time to time. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He says, the sun and the stars, the big ones, the little ones are going to burn up their fuel before my word ceases to be true. It's permanent. Its truth can take us through life to the end. Its counsel is good because its counsel is unshakable and will not change. It is eternal. And lastly, David says, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They bring about comprehensive righteousness wherever your particular need is in the believer. It brings renewal. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes, gives us moral clarity. It is clean and endures forever, and it brings about comprehensive righteousness. That's why the godly 
meditate. That's why they're partly blessed and they meditate on the word of the Lord. So we have seen that the, that the man of God, the woman of God, the believer, avoids certain things. They practice certain things. They delight in the law of the Lord and they meditate on it. And thirdly, the godly is described here. And by the way, we're only going to go through verses 1 through 3, so hang in there. The godly man, his, we're, we're, it's, he's described in terms of what his life look like, looks like or the, as a result of the life path he has chosen. Verse 3, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. You can stop right there. The believer will be, will look like a firmly established tree. And when I first read this, I remember way back in the day, I, I began to think or I assumed that this was a natural tree, one that grew out in nature. But the word tree here means a cutting. This is a developed seedling that is firmly planted. The better translation would be firmly transplanted tree. In other words, this is a, a tree purposefully, securely transplanted where? To a luxuriant and fertile location. It is planted by streams of water. Notice, notice the plural there. Multiple contributing tributaries. This is a select tree, purposely transplanted to a high-yielding location where it can grow strong and supremely productive. So the metaphor of, a, of the believer here is that he is like a tree, but not an ordinary wild tree that may land and germinate in soil that cannot fully sustain it. But this is a chosen tree, a cultivated tree, firmly transplanted in a fertile location where the conditions are ripe for growth and for it to thrive. So guys, God has chosen us. He has redeemed us. He has established us in choice soil with multiple streams for our spiritual well-being. Say, so what are the streams? There are many. Let me just name a couple. One is communion with the Lord. You are grafted into God himself. His life flows through your life, his spiritual life. You read, uh, I'll give you a homework assignment. Read John 14 this week on your own. Talk about blessings. In, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus himself, in, in verse 7 of chapter 14, he promises that the Holy Spirit will come and not just be with the disciples, but will be what? in the disciples, right? And that's true of every believer since Pentecost. We have the third person of the Trinity abiding in us. And then in verse 21, Jesus says, and if you love me, I will come to you and I will disclose myself to you, promising amazing intimacy with Jesus, the Son. And then in verse 23, Jesus says, and if you love me, you love my Father and we will come to you and we will make our abode with you. So every Christian from the humblest to the greatest, has the indwelling Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have communion with the Lord. And with that, we have access to them in prayer, right? Anytime. And the Holy Spirit prays for you. And Jesus prays, intercedes for you. We have communion with the Lord. We have prayer. We have the gift of worship. We have the gift of fellowship with His people. And that and so much more that arise 
out of the promises of his word. We are firmly established trees, guys. We have everything we need for spiritual health. Secondly, I want you to notice very quickly that the godly are like cultivated trees designed for fruitfulness, vibrancy, and prosperity. Let's look at that first one, fruitfulness. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. I love that. By God's timing and by God's grace, the godly life is a fruitful life. It is fruitful because of where God roots us, in the bountiful soil of truth and grace. Spurgeon put it this way. Quote, The man who delights in God's word, being taught by it, brings forth patience in the time of suffering, faith in the day of trial, and joy in the hour of prosperity. Unquote. The, the soul that feeds on the tributaries that God provides will be fruitful. He, she will bring about appropriate fruit at the appropriate time. The godly will know a fruitful, grace-filled ex- existence. That's, that means that they will be alive with spiritual vibrancy. We read of the cultivated tree and its leaf does not wither. You know want to know what that means? That whatever the godly man does, because it is imbued with the life of God, it has per- permanence and meaning. And so the, the truth you speak to one another, the smallest words you say of truth, the, the smallest step of faith, the smallest labor of love, it has meaning and it is enduring. And even though he may be physically weak, his life is full of spiritual vibrancy. And so he says, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The man, the woman who delight in the word of God and in his law and grace will enjoy. This is what this is teaching. Spiritually prosperous lives. They will have the Midas touch, spiritually speaking. Everything you touch will have endurance, permanence, meaning. Haven't you seen this in older saints, guys? People who are weak and diminished. Maybe some of you go to the, what's the name of the, the house, uh, the retirement home we go to? Sun City Gardens. We've met a dear 99-year-old who is blind, who is still vibrant. I, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, know one of these people very closely. It was my dad. In fact, uh, you want to show the picture of my dad there? This is uh, Anthony Tolopilo. And maybe he'll appear there. There he is. That's my dad. That's when he looked like a friendly rabbi grandpa. That's my dad. Um, You know, he lived a long life. God gave him 92 years almost, just two months shy. He was a pastor for over 50 years. But even after he retired, he and mom lived with us for a couple decades. He never laid down his shepherd's crook. He was always shepherding people. He was shepherding me. He would call me his Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand, the son of my strength, because we took care of him when he was old. He was a gifted evangelist. He led more people to Christ than anybody I've known personally. He was faithful to my mom. He loved my mom. He was a faithful dad, a faithful grandpa, and always fruitful. I mean, even to the end, and, and even when he was paralyzed, blind, and 100% dependent on us for his survival. 
So many times that man held court, court by his bedside, instructing people. And, and let me tell you, the, the hospice workers, just as an example, whether they were a doctor, a nurse, or a helper of some sort, everybody got preached to. I mean, he was always feeling them out. Is this person saved? Do they need an encouraging word? Do they need an exhortation? Do they need the gospel? And everybody who did not know the gospel heard the gospel from my dad. And he was blind, so I'm pretty sure one time he even shared the gospel with a file cabinet. But he was so fruitful. And the graces, just the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about, he was so full of those graces, patience, always patient in the midst of amazing circumstances. You can show the next uh, photo where he is uh, bed-bound. There we are uh, with Dad. In fact, on that day, he told us he was going to die. He had this thick accent. He was, he was born in Poland, raised in Argentina, and hardly spoke English. But he, he said, Today the Lord take me home. You know? And he was so sure of it. And he would tell us in Spanish, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he thought he was going. And this is the only time when he wavered a little bit in the consistency of those graces because the next day he woke up and I was by his bedside. And he hadn't died. And he looked at me and he, he said, you still here? <laughs> he said, I know in heaven. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. Um, Actually, he wasn't far off. He died the day after this. You can see there, we're all gathered around him, and, and the phone is up there on the pillow, my iPhone, because my son was teaching a chemistry lab in New, uh, at NYU, and he was able to break away, and we just sat together, sometimes silent with the phone, and just, we were around my dad. But a couple of weeks after he died, and you can, there's one more picture, I think it's similar to this one. Yeah, there he is, talking with Rebecca. <laughs> But when we were going through his personal effects, um, he didn't have much, he did mostly books, and he had already given away hundreds of volumes, but he had $400 in his bank account when he died. This had a few things. But then we ran across his real treasure, three Bibles. And he had many Bibles peppered in his collection, but these Bibles were different. They were the Bible in a year format, you know, where you read through the Bible in a year. And they had his annotations everywhere, on every page virtually. Just little observations and what he thought about the scripture, what God was teaching him all over the place until he couldn't see anymore. And, but the thing that made these Bibles different and unique was that they were totally thrashed. In fact, I, I brought one of the three I wanted to show you. You have to keep it in a Ziploc. Not for freshness. But this was one of his read-through-the-year Bibles. And you can see it's not in great shape. Um, you can see he wrote on every page virtually. And then when you start getting deeper and deeper into it, it just becomes a, a mess. And the thought that occurred to me is, how many times do you have to read a Bible like this for it to become end up in this condition. You know what the answer to that is? A lot. And there were three of them like this. 
And I turned to my wife and I held up this pulp and I said, now <laughs> I'm reminded why dad was so fruitful. Because his life was rooted in this word. In fact, I, I ran across one more little book and this was two days ago after I finished, I'd finished writing my message for this week and I was really bummed that I could only get through the first three verses. I ran into this. This is a gift from my dad back in 1997. You can see it's a pretty ornate little book. It's the, the book of Psalms in Hebrew and translated into Spanish. And in the front, which is the opposite in Hebrew, read right to left, he wrote a little note for me. This is like getting a note from my dad when he's been gone for three years, you know. And uh, it reads, let me read it to you in Spanish and then I'll translate it. I know this is getting hard to follow because I'm reading a note in Spanish that I'll translate into English on a book written in Hebrew and Spanish. <laughs> Bear with me, I'm almost done. But my dad wrote this in Spanish. Un pequeño obsequio con un grandioso contenido para hoy día y la eternidad. Um, you know, para mi amado hijo Marcelo, papá, in 1997, Temecula. He used to put the date on everything. But he, it says, a, a, a tiny keepsake with a grand content both for today and for eternity uh, for my beloved son, Marcelo. And uh, like I said, I was feeling bummed that I only got through verses 1 through 3. But you know, he put a scripture reference in the title page here. And you know what it is? Psalm 1, 1 through 3. So, thanks, Dad. <laughs> or, Lord, you tell him thanks, because I don't think he can hear me. He's not bothered by stuff down here. But let's, guys, let's, let's rejoice in what God has given us in his word. Uh, Psalm 1. You've been listening to the podcast of Walking in the Promises. If you would like to learn more about our ministry or invite Marcelo to speak, visit us online at witp.org.